Welcome back to the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast. Today we are joined by Manas Chawla, founder and CEO of the student-run pro bono political risk organization based out of London, London Politica. Manas founded London Politica in 2020 during the pandemic when he noticed an accessibility problem in the geopolitical risk industry. Today, the geopolitical risk industry resembles an oligopoly. Uh, there's a lot of there's a small handful of large firms that retain the largest clients and drive trends primarily. Uh, but the issue is that the fees which these firms charge are often too lofty for the massive pool of small to mid-sized businesses and independent business owners around the world. And that's where London Politico comes in. Run by students who provide new and innovative perspectives on the world of geopolitics, London Politico provides geopolitical risk services and thought leadership at affordable prices to a diverse world of clients. Today, Manas is gonna walk us through how he founded the firm, which now boasts 70 analysts across 20 countries, with backgrounds from the likes of Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, and clients such as Global Citizen. And to make this all more impressive, Manas is currently a student at the London School of Economics where he's studying international relations. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Manas. Very, very pleased to be with you, Clay and Andrew. Thanks so much. So to jump us off, um, would you mind just giving us sort of a backstory about where you're from and how you ended up at the London School of Economics to begin with? Sure, sure. I mean, where I'm from is a hard question, because uh, I don't know where I'm from particularly. But I'll give you the backstory. So I was born in New Delhi, India, uh, and I sort of moved around to a bunch of places after that. Uh, my father worked, uh, worked as a diplomat, uh, and so that sort of led me around the world. So after India, I moved to, you know, Belarus, Brazil, Thailand, Canada, back in India, now in the UK. Um, and, you know, being in so many different countries uh, and constantly sort of changing political environments... I mean, firstly, I don't feel very Indian or feel particularly Canadian or British. Um, I, I really do feel like, sort of, you know, as cliche as it sounds, a citizen of the world. And so I think that kind of gives you that grounding of, you know, being as appreciative of, uh, you know, the sort of geopolitical developments in what's happening in the South China Sea as it is, you know, in the country that you currently reside in. And so I think that was a big part of sort of how I got interested in international relations. And then there's also the obvious, you know, the dinner time sort of discussions around the sort of family dinner table were always, you know, what's going on in Afghanistan or like, what is this ESG thing? Or, you know, like, what is this UN secretary general doing? And, and you kind of, you know, gradually pick up on bits and pieces and uh, it gets you sort of really curious about how the world works. So that's, that's how I ended up, you know, developing a fascination for political risk, for international relations, for geopolitics, and, and sort of that's how I ended up at LSE. I mean, actually, the, the LSE part is funny as well, because I had never intended to end up at LSE. I applied about three minutes before the deadline. Um, and, and I don't know if you're familiar with like the British application process. Most people, it's a rolling application process. And most people apply, you know, often even up to six months in advance. Um, so I was mostly going to, you know, apply to universities in Canada and America. Um, and very last minute, I was like, yeah, I was just throwing an application. I probably won't even get in and, and sort of seemed to work out. But yeah. What is the UN secretary general doing? No, that is a, uh, a different question for another day, but so you got into international relations because of the interest of, of geopolitics and your sort of cosmopolitan background. How has the sort of the expectation in terms of why you got into international relations sort of met your experience through your studies at the London School of Economics? And is in some way perhaps your experience with the department and how international relations is taught, at least given my background of IR at, at Penn and at Oxford, has that sort of like led you to pursue and start London Politica in some way to sort of 
get that involvement you might not have gotten from your studies. Yeah. I mean, the IR department at LSE is like fantastic, right? Like, and that, that's very much my personal opinion. The stats don't back that up, right? LSE, frankly, has some of the lowest, most terrible student satisfaction rates in probably Europe. Um, really? I personally, yeah, yeah, t- totally. Um, I, I think, and it's like, it's a large margin, right? Like, not only is it the worst, but it's worse by like, like clearly, big, clearly, worse, yeah. clearly the worst. Um, but I, I really like the department, uh, and and I, I you know I love the faculty is top notch, uh, and and they clearly put sort of a lot of effort into doing what they're doing. Um, the fact that there is a department of IR in the first place is a big deal. Most universities won't have that, right? Most universities they sort of club in politics and IR and you know development mm-hmm. studies and whatever else into one big mm-hmm. sort of cluster. Um, and it just, I, I, you know, to have that sort of dedicated space makes a big difference because the courses you're offered uh, are quite sort of, you know, can be specialized and sort of tailored to what you really want to study, which I really appreciate. Um, so, yeah, no, the IR scene is sort of fantastic. Uh, what I did quite, quite quickly pick up on is I love, you know, the theory bits of it. I would never, ever, ever want to work in like the theoretical aspects of international relations or sort of whatever that is. And we were just talking about this before we started recording, but um, yeah, it's just, whatever I remember is, I was theory in international relations. Yeah. That's a, that in yeah. of itself is a great question. Exactly. Whatever that is. I mean, I, I remember I was, I was three or four weeks into, into uni, like very seriously considering being a professor as soon as I came in. Cause I was like, they have these big shiny offices and you know, all these sort of students come around and listen to them. It sounds really cool. And then I remember this, it's very like just very distinctly this one moment in a lecture where kind of in the middle of it just sort of as a joke uh the professor mentioned how the average social sciences paper or the average humanities paper gets something like two uh full reads apart from the original author and the reviewer um and then that's a like actual credible statistic and, and i thought he was kidding and i looked it up and it was true and as soon as i was like i don't want to spend my life right you know spending six months writing a paper that frankly no one's going to read um, and so that very much kind of took me in the opposite direction, which is I don't want to go into academia and the sort of civil service stuff, which all my friends are doing sounds quite bureaucratic and boring, frankly. Um, so how can I actually, you know, not be an investment banker and go into financial services like all the other guys are doing? So, you know, let me sort of how can I actually sort of use these geopolitical skills in the real world? Uh, and, and political risk kind of stood out as an answer to that. I found the Political Risk Society at LSE, which is frankly quite rare, only about, according to my research, about four you know, universities in the world have a sort of dedicated political risk student group. Um, so I was lucky enough to find that, got really involved in it. Um, just thought, you know, just the very idea that, you know, you can have an opinion about geopolitics and get paid for it, even if it's not too much, uh, sounded really, really cool. So that, that's how I jumped into that. Uh, I led that society uh, all throughout the last year. Um, and, uh, you know, while doing that and, and while doing an internship in political risk, um, kind of very quickly realized that there's sort of two main problems in the industry, right? So there's the problem that, like, you know, I was lucky, but unlike me, there's tons and tons of students who feel like their only option studying IR or to go into academia or the civil service, right? So there's this massive uh, kind of lack of uh, realization that political risk space even exists. And to the people who know about the space and might have heard of Ian Bremer or Eurasia Group, um, they're not quite sure how to get into it, which is fair enough, because if you look at the LinkedIn bio of any person who works in this industry, it's inevitable they've sort of transitioned over from, you know, a vast career in national security or consulting or law or something else, right? Very few people just jump into it right after uni. So that was the one big problem I saw. And then actually working behind the curtain at this firm that I worked at last summer, realized very quickly, like, 
you know, as you mentioned in, in the in the interview, uh, sort of in the intro, Andrew, like the, the the price tag associated with some of these services is extremely extremely high, um, which crowds out the entire market of you know social impact organizations, of human rights charities, of of you know nonprofits, of uh, you know advocacy organizations. Um, of course, in addition to the small to medium businesses and basically anything that isn't a Fortune 500 company, right? None of them are thinking about. Uh, or they might be thinking about, but none of them can afford to go to a tailored political risk consultancy in the way that the industry exists today. Um, and, you know, I wanted to kind of bridge those two gaps and uh, looking at that sort of problem, I realized kind of London Politica and, and the form that it took today is the best solution to that and that we democratize the space for students. We democratize the space for, you know, clients that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford these services. Um, and, and yeah, overall kind of, uh, plug that hole that, that so desperately needed to be filled. I think you guys really do a great job <clears throat> filling in that sort of hole for the, for the small medium businesses. I'm wondering sort of, do you also then think, how can we not do geopolitical risk different in terms of who we're giving our services to, but actually how we're doing geopolitical risk. You talked about, you know, how you like that you could just give your opinion in terms of geopolitics and someone would pay. Do you think that, you know, actually geopolitical risk should maybe move a step f further than just giving opinions and having, you know, the I think the part we're forecasting really goes well with geopolitical risk is the idea of having a track record, something that you can actually back up and not only, you know, have clear criteria in terms of whether or not you're right or wrong and whether or not your analysis are right or wrong. Um, and that's not really something that you necessarily get out of Eurasia Group or out of Oxford um, Analytica or other organizations. Do you think like that's somewhere that the industry should go? And is that somewhere that you want to take London Politica in the future or see the organization go down that line um, down into the future? Yeah, no, a, ch a change in sort of the way the model works is very, very necessary, right? Because you realize you know, we talk about this industry being small. It's really, really small, right? Like it, it's hard to sort of appreciate how small it is. I mean, a couple of people I've heard sort of the average figure I hear is about a billion dollars in annual turnover a year of the entire industry combined, right? For reference, McKinsey is about $10 billion a year, right? So the entire space is a 10th of McKinsey. There's like and what, four when you or five firms a, right out and, there. And exactly four or five big firms, a couple of sort of, you know, mom and pop stores that, you know, two or three people sort of refugees from the bigger firms starting their own thing. That's about it. And, and what you have with this is, number one, everyone thinks the same way. Uh, number two, everyone was educated the same way, because frankly, I mean, most, if you look at the age group, right, most of the people leading or kind of in, in sort of director level uh, positions are kind of what, 40s, 50s, made their career studying the Cold War. You know, you, you'll see a disproportionate amount of people with a background in kind of uh, Russian and Eastern European studies, because that's what was hot then. You know, the people you see after that, vast majority of them, you know, Middle East speakers, uh, Arabic speakers and sort of Middle East experts, because, you know, that was 9-11, what happened after that. I mean, I, I think it's very much going to be true that in, in sort of coming years, we're going to see all sort of China experts taking over the space, right? So that's one problem. They all kind of have a, a very sort of cliquey uh, mm -hmm. sort of reputation. But more than that, I think it's the way they do their stuff, right? So um, it's very much a mentality of a reliance on sort of armchair punditry. It's very much that, you know, uh, if there's a problem, I'm going to call a guy I know who knows about, you know, who knows how to handle that, right? So if there's a, if there's a uh, situation, if there's a, if there's a big blast in Yemen, let's say, right, and you have a client that has a stake in an oil refinery there, and you contact, you know, a sort of a partner at a political risk firm that that uh, is advising you, 
that guy isn't going to, you know, get on his laptop, learn everything that needs to be done about it, uh, you know, run it through the relevant models and give you an answer. He's going to pick up the phone. He's going to call up his buddy who used to work in the Clinton administration who did, you know, one sort of Senate foreign relations thing in Yemen. And, and he's going to ask him what he thinks. And so, you know, you get lots of people chiming in with that have their own agendas. You get lots of people chiming in that um, have sort of very biased, I'd say, and, and kind of very set in stone views of the world. And I think to that story, London Politica, but, you know, more broadly, sort of younger people like us have something really impactful to say, which is that we understand these things in, in a far more different way um, that sort of the rest of uh, the kind of existing mainstream political risk community does. Yeah. I do think, you know, you, you said the clicky part, that was a small portion. I wonder if that actually is not like much bigger because it, it seems really like opaque in terms of how do I actually get a job at your Asia group that is actually doing like meaningful work, right? Like assuming I don't want to just work as an analyst for three, four years and just sort of climb through mm. that way. Um, it really is sort of like an, an opaque system. And if you had something where you're somehow having a track record, then you sort of bring into it like a meritocratic sort of aspect in terms of like the application. So like in the same way, you have like an SAT score, you know, you could say like, oh, this person is in the top 1% for geopolitical questions on Metaculus. That, that is actually a, a meaningful metric in our hiring process. And we can sort of highlight that and sort of make it a little bit more transparent and have actually metrics that people like know, like this is actually a, a skill that I can work on and mm. develop that will actually get me into the door. Whereas otherwise you yeah. don't have that right now. Totally. And and it's not, I mean, we, we sort of use kind of Eurasia group as the go-to scapegoat, which very much makes sense because it is sort of the linchpin of the industry, but it's every, I, I've yet in sort of, you know, a couple of years of doing this, I've yet to come across a firm that has you know, some easily accessible page on their website that says, these are the calls that we've made and this is where we've gotten it right and this is where we've gotten it wrong. Because frankly, all the biggest calls of the last couple of years, because of the problems I outlined, because it's cliquey and small and they sort of, there's a, there's a serious tendency to groupthink in the industry because of those things. I mean, most of the big calls have been wrong, right? Mm -hmm. um, Ian Bremmer was wrong on Brexit. He was wrong on Trump. He was wrong on the wars in the Middle East. Right. Uh, and if you see that the sort of and, and not only is he and, and, and broader, really, just to be yeah. fair, like maybe he's like not necessarily even entirely wrong. Maybe if you forced Ian Bremmer to give you a percentage, he would have said, you know, Brexit was a, 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 a 40 percent chance of happening. Well, that's actually different than, you know, just saying it's mm. not going to happen. And maybe if he was even forced to give a probability that sort of forces you to temper your the way in which you're talking about it. Cause I know before it, it was very much, it's not going to happen, but if you then yeah. have to give, you know, an actual thing that people then can go back and say, wait a second, here's what you said. Mm. Here's what had happened. Then, um, yeah, sort of moderates it that way. So maybe like uh, he's yeah. not as wrong as he, he might otherwise seem, but there's not a track record to, to prove that either. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's no way. And, and so that's the thing, right? Like, and you have these sort of spaces that come up the good judgment, is it the good judgment project mm -hmm. or that sort of platform, right? Where they have these things. I just feel like there's a better way to integrate that. Like that, that community is fantastic, but I just, there's got to be a better way to integrate that with like the professional services, the people who actually make the decisions and advise the companies. Um, and I don't know what it is, but and that's but what we've heard. Like that version needs to be made. You yeah, know, Andrew and I, we've talked to someone who who runs a financial firm where they use geopolitical forecasting in some of their decisions, and you know, they 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 like good judgment and metaculous, but they're just not 
integratable enough or have the right kind of metrics that it can be useful for their hiring process necessarily. But it's something that like in theory, in abstract, that's like a great thing that they would love to have. So um, it'd be interesting yeah. to see, you know, what sort of fills that void. Uh, you know, I'm not even sure I, I, I'd even, to be fair, to sort of some of the existing firms, like I'm not even sure I'd want that to be part of the hiring process, right? Like if, if someone comes in for a job, do I really want to, you know, have them make, you know, make three calls or make 10 calls and let me see if you get more than seven right and hire you based on that? Or do I sort of really want to see how they think and, you know, whether they have a good grasp for adapting to things that they sort of might not know about, right? Like those are things I really look for. Yeah. And yeah. Could be like a component though, right? Like in the same way, if you're a coder, you know, you might share yeah. a GitHub profile, right? Sure. And, sure, and sure, sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. As, as like a take-home assignment, that'd be a little, I think that'd be silly, right? Like do three forecasts, right? That'd be. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to take a step back. Um, you know, how much do firms actually care about accuracy? Like how much does this all really matter? You know, are big firms more interested in being able to pay a BCG or a Deloitte because they can sell that to their higher ups, you know, whether they get it wrong or right, they invested in trying to make a good call or are firms willing to sort of take a risk on uh, smaller, more boutique yeah. um, sort of geopolitical risk um, insights, uh, you know, if, in, in, if my experience, in my experience, it's, it's almost the opposite of that, right? It's that, it, you know, the firms are trying, they're genuinely their hardest because they know it's their only competitive edge to give the best insight they can. I think it's, you know, often the clients, especially when we talk about bigger clients that are Fortune 500 financial services, right? So financial services is a different story because lots of them will do their own geopolitical analysis and hire, you know, a big consultancy to just double check that. And that makes sense. And I'm on board for that. A lot of these firms, because of the rise of, um, you know, regulatory requirements or because of the rise of sort of more activist investors or all sorts of things, because of ESG, right? They'll have this sort of political risk element very much only as a box ticking thing. So it'll be like, a, oh, we have a project coming up in Malaysia. You know, have we hired someone to do the due diligence there? Mm. Take, right? Does it really matter what they come up with and how accurate it is? And, you know, have they kind of exaggerated? Are they being a bit too alarmist? Or it doesn't really matter, right? It, it's We've hired someone. We've done the due diligence, right? Take, let's move on. And in many ways, you can't really blame them. Right. Um, there's there's no way to know. There's there's there, there's a clear kind of moral hazard problem between the guy who's giving you the political risk analysis and you as a you know, as a consumer of it. Right. If, if you're relying on their advice and if it's a small cliquey industry and if there's no way to judge their track record and if, you know, there's very few competitors, how do you like what, what do you ask for? It makes me think that at some point, you know, in this you'll appreciate this. You're a fan of Gary Vaynerchuk, but. You know, this idea that in the future, um, you meet somebody new or you're, you know, encountering a new firm, you're not going to Google them, you're going to go to their public wallet, you know, if everything's on the blockchain, mm. you're going to be able to see and verify, verifiably see, you know, what calls they've made, when did they make them, were they right or wrong, see, you know, the history of their work, um, you know, perhaps that will sort of change the landscape of, of how we think about the people that we're getting information from, you know, and we care more about the accuracy and the track record than, you know, who's on TV. Yeah, no, entirely. And, and I think things are heading to that direction. I think they're happening very, very, very slowly, right? Like I, I to be completely realistic, they're not, they're not, you know, we're not going to see a massive NFT revolution in five years, which completely democratizes the space. But I like, and NFT is a good example, right? Like you asked me sort of, what is it that we young people have that to offer that, you know, NFTs 
I, I genuinely fundamentally in my heart believe that in 15 years will be as important as the internet was, you know, uh, you know, 10 years ago, say, right. Um, and whether that's NFTs, whether that's blockchain, right. I mean, I think people get stuck up on sort of the micro trends, right? Like I don't care what the price of Bitcoin is today compared to six months ago, but I think the, the fundamental sort of underlying architecture of that technology you can already see it, right? You can already, China is developing uh, a, a central bank-backed digital currency, right? That, that sort of money, that can have an expiry date on, on when it's uh, expended by its citizens, right? That changes monetary policy, completely blows monetary policy out of the water. And that's going to exist in five years, right? That's going to exist in 10 years. It'll be mainstream in 15. And every major bank around the world is trialing that, right? And like how many of the political risk firms that you've seen have that on their top 10 list of risks to watch out for? None that I've seen. So, so that, that's, I, I think young people have a particular tendency uh, to understand those sorts of things that really, really matter. Uh, because NFTs they, is a great yeah, example. Yeah. And also example. the fact that like, I feel like now that you mentioned, like it's not even one of the risks. It seems like most of the risks that we know about aren't even like risks. They're things that were risks that then became like, at, like a threat. And it's like now actually like causing mm. damage. Like climate change is no longer a geopolitical risk. It's just a... It's it's a geopolitical like negative thing that's here, right? Like uh, at some point, um, mm. like I, I feel like risk would at least be looking at into the future in terms of something that we're not expecting to cause issues, right? Like I feel like people are already warning about AI alignment, at least within our communities that we're into. Climate change is obviously sort of well being talked about. Nuclear risk, I don't think is it's sort of being re-talked about after after the Cold War. Everyone kind of forgot that nukes existed, kind of seemed like, but now we kind of are starting to remember that again um but it just seems like for some reason the risks that we were identifying are are things that maybe like five years ago should have been a risks and are now just like do like our, our constants um yeah instead yeah nuclear risk is a really good example right because because the first i don't know if you know the, for the first time you really really heard about nuclear risk right was way back when kind of after 9-11 right and and that's when warren buffett went on tv and he talked about nuclear risk and he talked about the rising threat of Al-Qaeda. And obviously, like, it was very visual imagery that the American people had seen on their television screens two weeks before that thing took place, right? Um, three months later, Berkshire Hathaway selling nuclear risk insurance, right? Three, like, you know, a year later, that's mainstream in the industry. Ten years later, everyone forgets about it. So it's a cyclical thing. Um, and it's very much, I think, sentiment uh, dominated. Uh, by things that go on around us. And, you know, you take that and you put on the sort of box ticking tendency of these firms and you combine that together. Um, and you, what you get is this sort of very acute sense of myopia, right? Like you're only focusing on the next six months or the next business cycle or the next, you know, financial quarter. But if you can, you know, take a step back and look 10 years ahead of that, there's no way you can actually meaningfully talk about geopolitical risk. Like you said, you'll be stuck talking about the things that have already happened and that are just threats now that, you know, you just wouldn't have to face. Yeah. I mean, kind of going off of risks, are there um, certain risks or, you know, threats as, uh, as you put it, Clay, that you see um, sort of on the horizon? Do you expect a certain type of case to be coming in from clients, you know, most often in the next um, couple of years, uh, you know, whether it's related to, as you said, climate change, or maybe um, there's going to be, you know, questions around migration, um, as some mm. countries in the Middle East sort of sort out their own domestic political issues, Algeria, you know, namely one that's been in the news recently. Um, you know, there's some that are top of mind for you. Yeah, I mean, migration is a big one. I, I, I'm not even nearly 
position to talk about. I know nothing about that, but a good friend of mine, Parag, is coming out with a book in October called Move. So quick little plug for that. Um, But but yeah, I, I think when you talk about climate, right, like something like ESG is a risk and very much not in the way that people think about, right? People think about ESG risk as uh, sort of the regulatory transitional side of it or the physical side of it. So the physical side is, you know, because could there be a higher chance of a tsunami happening and could that damage your factory? And is that something we should take into account? And, you know, that sort of risk, that's just investing, right? Like that's just operations, right? People were thinking about that before ESG came into place because it affects their bottom line. Um, I think the real risk with ESG is how hollow it is. Um, and and how sort of few firms actually recognize that. Uh, you know, you, the, the 10 biggest ESG uh, investment funds in the world, eight of them own a major stake in oil and gas firms, right? Um, there's there's a, a fantastic couple of sort of uh, recent posts by Robert Armstrong, who's the US Financial Times editor uh, on the FT in the last week, right? Just really just outlining why ESG doesn't work, right? It doesn't actually lower access to bad access to capital for you know bad companies doing bad things. Um, uh, so there's a whole conversation that we can get into that that you know around ESG uh, and how quickly we're moving into the direction of making everything ESG friendly and and you know characterizing all of our uh, investment vehicles with ESG and all of our operations with an ESG tech, uh, but just sort of how hollow that fundamentally is. I think. You know, there's, there's things under the surface, and, and I love to talk about these things um, that people don't consider, that they only consider, you know, in a black swan event. I, I hate that term, the black swan event, but it's what everyone seems to use. But, um, you know, if, if there's a war, right, in the next 10 years, which there probably will be, um, who's going to fight that war? It's not going to be governments. It's not going to be, it's not going to be, you know, the, the U.S. armed forces anymore. It, it, it's frankly going to be mercenaries, right? Uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, about 50% of the forces on the boots on the ground right now in the last, you know, five, 10 years have been Blackwater, have been private military contractors, and they operate in a complete legal gray zone, right? There, There's no... Congress can't ask them how many troops they have. We actually don't, even the U.S. government doesn't know how many actual contractors there are. They commissioned so the Pentagon, great. commissioned a study to find out how many contractors they've actually contracted. They don't know. Um, you know, they operate in a complete legal gray zone. There's no there's no system of accountability. Nothing applies to that. Um, there's there's always reports that are often, you know, surface for a little bit and then just go down because of external pressure that, uh, you know, if you have one side fighting with mercenaries, you have another side fighting with mercenaries, What's to stop those mercenaries from just keeping on fighting far more than is necessary when profit is the incentive that's driving them forward, right? So that's a massive- Bad no glass door reviews. Yeah, bad glass door <laughs> reviews. Eurasia Group has tons of those, um, <laughs> tons of those, but yeah. No, that's a great point. And, you know, private military contractors have been around forever since, you know, the days of pirates and sailing and discovering. So um, I don't see those going away anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And and these sorts of things, right? Like, you're right. I mean, they've, they've existed for, you know, hundreds, if not possibly even, you know, a couple thousand years now. But the, the, the current PMC, private military contractor landscape, only really started like, you know, post-Cold War, post-9-11 era, right? Because you had all these soldiers that, you know, post-Cold War, uh, that now suddenly Cold War is over. Now you need a job. Now you can't really be in the army anymore. You know, uh, what do you do with that, right? Like there's thousands of people looking for a job that have all these army-backed trainings. Plus, governments are very hesitant to put down their own forces. And they more and more in a sort of a great power competition landscape want to apply influence um, where they they 
also don't want to be bound by the the ethics and the legality of you know engaging in warfare. Um, and so, had someone been there, you know, in in the 1990s, the early 2000s, really thinking about what's going to happen um, with a sort of small emergence of you know block and another time, right? The ratio was like one to 50, right? One contract for 50 soldiers, right? No one saw it coming. Now it's one to one, or you know, even twisted the other way, often two to one. So these are the sort of things we want to pick up on. And that's why you need to have a sort of frame that's, you know, 10, 20 years into the future. Yeah. So before we get into some forecasting questions, just curious about if there's a project that you've worked on at London Political that stands out to you as something that was particularly interesting or maybe, um, you know, you got it wrong or the resolution was surprising to your team. Uh, you know, you don't have to give names of clients or the specifics of the actual ask, but yeah, if there's one that stands out to you in particular. Hmm. Uh, I mean, we've gotten tons of things wrong. I, I think an interesting one around that is, so our usual process when we get a client is sometimes a client will have, you know, a problem, like they, they want to X, precisely X solved. And we try our best to sort of mitigate that. Nine out of 10 times, we find that's actually not their biggest problem, right? Um, that's probably something that they sort of read in the news and kind of have their eye on, which is fair enough. But, you know, very few clients have actually done an entire geopolitical risk audit. And from a top down and a bottom up, we figured out like, these are the big problems. So there's this one time we were advising a uh, impact investment fund who was investing in various positions in the Middle East. Um, and you know, that involves a lot of due diligence. And obviously they had very talented people doing their due diligence. And so they'd come out to us with like one very, very specific issue, which is, you know, we have this position and this guy uh, and something looks a little bit shady around that, but can you just sort of look into it and can you just make sure it's all good for us? Um, and so that, that, you know, you can kind of tell in these sort of first initial interactions when something's a box ticking kind of activity. So, you know, you very quickly do that, you get the resolve in two weeks. Um, and then we said, okay, hold on. Why don't we just, you know, let's, let's just, before you start putting money into this, give us two weeks, give us three weeks and let's look into the other 10 that you're investing in. Right. Or I think it was 10 or 15. Um, and let's actually look at those positions and, and we have some resources that can help. And so they're obviously advising kind of investing in Jordan, investing in Iraq, Iran, right. These countries don't have, uh, the most transparent, uh, you know, disclosure mechanisms or that sort of thing. You know, it's, it's the sort of due diligence and the open source research you do using kind of American contractors, it's just not going to work for, for the Middle East, right? Um, luckily, we had a couple of very good resources. We knew someone on the board of the Amman Stock Exchange um, through a previous client relationship. Uh, we knew a couple of other people who were hedge funds or sort of led hedge funds in, in the Middle East. Sort of, We talked to them. Um, so that, that's where kind of human intelligence plays a big part. Uh, we did a lot of sentiment analysis around political instability, right? That's not something they were looking at. Um, so that's literally just looking at, you know, where is, uh, where do you sort of see uh, instability fermenting at the crevices of, of kind of society, right? Like before it's, you know, gone into all out protest, right? Like our food price is rising somewhere, you know, is the price of bread really sharply rising and no one's looking at that, right? Those are the kind of things that trigger the Arab Spring. So we're looking at that. We're looking at sort of all sorts of things, right? And we find out after doing, you know, we, we look for separate things and we find out um, it's really funny. They have a lot of clients, a lot of companies are investing in, in Jordan. Um, and their names sound really funny. They're really Persian sounding names. Um, so we're like, okay, cool. I, I was like, let's look into that. Um, well, they're Persian sounding names. Turns out they're all Iranian. Fair enough. Um, and, and they all check out. 
Um, but something still wasn't right. So, so we look into their families, right? And you could find these sorts of things. And then, you know, th this devolves into an area, which is, you know, it's not stalking, but, you know, you're looking at all publicly available information and you're looking at, okay, like, who's this guy's wife? All right. And what does she do? Okay. Um, she's registered as the director of like seven different investment companies. That sounds a bit shady. Um, let's look at like her like third cousin. Oh, it turns out like he's on the sanctions list, um, you know, on, on, on the American JCPOA sanctions list. Uh, okay, cool. And, and, and it turns out sort of every director in the company is just a relative of someone who's been sanctioned by the Americans. So the company, okay, so then you find out, well, what does this company actually do and, and who are their subsidiaries, right? Um, and you really look into it, turns out it's a network of shell companies. Um, and so every company that it owns is this like very generically entitled company. You can see it on Companies House on the UK official website. It's registered in the UK. Um, you know, it says it makes about 10 pounds a year, which sounds very legit. Uh, it's registered on on some PO box in like Essex, um, and so all of that looks really shady, right? Like we're not you know military intelligence experts, but like we can look at that and be like that is shady as hell, right? So we go back to the client, and we say like you've got to look into that. Um, they hire some professionals on it, right? Uh, turns out they could have been committing an international crime uh, by by sort of you know sponsoring. Uh, JCPOA targeted uh, Iranian uh, financial actors, uh, wow. which which thankfully they didn't do. Um, so so cool I, I think one. that was that's that's a cool one. Yeah, it was one of our most memorable ones. Yeah, you can quantify the cost savings there. I bet by just how much it would cost to go through the process of having to get out from mm. under uh, those sorts of losses. Yeah, so that's really yeah, interesting. When yeah, you ever yeah, do yeah. an analysis, I mean, do you ever like um? do like a, a, a pre-mortem, like kind of say like, here's our analysis, but mm. in case we were wrong, this is probably like the most likely like reason why, e even if you don't share it with a client, has that something that yeah. like maybe you've done like internally to like sort of um, check your own yeah. analysis and sort of maybe like pursue like a different avenue you might've otherwise ignored? Yeah. Um, we've tried that. We haven't gone very far with it. And the reason we try that is because usually it leads us down the wrong way, right? So usually it's, you know, it's not going to be like you're making a recommendation and if we're wrong, they only lose a little bit of money. So let's keep this. Like usually it's you're making a recommendation and if we're wrong, um, they lose a lot of money. So let's change our analysis entirely to fit sort of what they might want to hear. Um, and, and that's what leads you down the wrong track, right? Realistically. Mm -hmm. um, so what's important is, I mean, the only reason we do that is to make sure it's sort of to, to really solidify how high stakes the project is, right? There's no other real reason you would do that. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, we, you, you want to be as sort of transparent as you can with your client about, you know, this is what we're telling you. And thankfully, I mean, we do most of our you know, research pro bono, right? So we don't have a vested interest. We're not being paid for this stuff. So, so we don't have to worry about getting repeat clients or, you know, get this or that. That's what most mainstream companies have to worry about. So like the only thing we are judged on is the quality of our analysis. And so that's why there's a, there's a, there's a systemic incentive for us to be kind of very open and transparent about that. So sort of getting into forecasting, um, Clay mentioned a platform called Metaculus. I read an article earlier today um, that was asking the question or you know, exploring the idea of using these prediction markets or prediction platforms to gain insights on countries where their geopolitics are sort of murky, as you said, with countries like Iraq, Iran. Um, this article used China you know, as an example, um, countries where there is not transparency, using prediction markets to try and understand what they might do or how their domestic politics are moving. Do you have thoughts on sort of either that or just in general how forecasting might be able to play a role in the analysis that you do or, you know, the geopolitical risk space in general? 
Now, I, I think the forecasting space is really, really cool, right? I, I think the people involved in it, though, are, are quite reflective of what's good and what's bad about it, right? The people are involved in sort of, in my experience, and correct me if you sort of, you've seen other stuff, the people that I've seen involved with it are like just real geopolitical wonks and nerds, right? Like they're people who love doing this stuff outside of their day job uh, and who might kind of be involved with it in, in their day job, but like, you know, just really, really love like either one specific thing and love to be right, frankly, right? Um, and I think what happens is when you apply, like, there's there's obviously some overlap between you know geopolitical risk and between just sort of forecasting for the sake of it, um, but th there's a couple of main differences I've noticed, right? So like when you apply political forecasting to geopolitical risk in you know as a, like a literal consulting project, um, we can almost never use the data. You know we we can't ever really use the data from Good Judgment or Meticulous or sort of any of these other firms, um, just because the sort of things that they're thinking about and questioning aren't very relevant to what we're thinking about. Um, you know we're thinking about the specific exposure of of a particular kind of risk to a particular firm in a particular industry. Um, and you have these, you know, even the bigger firms, they love to quantify this sort of data, right? So you have like BlackRock has a geopolitical risk dashboard. Um, like, frankly, it's bullshit, right? Because because there's no meaningful way you can actually use that data. It's like, okay, geopolitical risk is going up now. And it's going down. It's going, how are you supposed to use that? Like, it's going up. So do I like pull out all my investments or like, do I just plug that number into a model and like, you know, decrease my risk presented by one percent? Like, it doesn't make yeah. sense, right? Um, it, it, it's it's a very, 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 very crude um, uh, brush to, to, to uh, actually have in any kind of bespoke sort of, consulting. So that's why we don't engage that much with the forecasting space. Um, I think there's definitely some more room for it. And where there is room for it is where there's a, there's a vested interest. I always find, I always ask people about, and people get quite shy talking about this for a good reason is, you know, the kind of alarmism we see in political risk, right? You're selling a service based on the fact that there's geopolitical volatility. So it kind of makes sense that you're going to talk more and more about volatility and, you know, like, this is why you need us. This is why, what if things are good? Like, what if there isn't that much volatility, right? Like, what if there isn't that much of a risk? How genuinely certain that your political risk advisor is going to be super, super honest about that and not try to sell you two extra things, um, you know, based on some sort of superficially risky uh, pattern? So um, I think that where forecasting doesn't have that incentive structure, right, where they don't have to worry about, a, you know, meeting a client demands or getting those deductibles, um, that's where forecasting can, can, I know there, there's some room there. I think that, that sort of broader forecasting space can play in getting a very accurate assessment of how much some things matter. Um, when I think most political risk, like Ian Bremmer's kind of key idea is we're in a geopolitical recession, right? This is the worst we've ever been in maybe 20, 30 years. And I'm sympathetic to that, but, but I'm also very, very cautious that at some point we won't be in a geopolitical recession. Um, and I'm not sure how many of the political risk firms will say that when we're not. That's interesting. Yeah, I'll be curious to watch that as well. Um, mm. So, I mean, yeah, I guess I'm curious. You're talking about how, you know, forecasting might not exactly align with a lot of the sort of ass and mandates of geopolitical risk work. Um, how often do you think when you're talking to a client, um, you know, do they actually want to see you know, a number, a quantified, uh, you know, uh, likelihood with any particular outcome versus sort of a more qualitative, nuanced analysis of what might happen in a particular region. Yeah, like if they have the choice all the time, right? All the time um, quantified. It, all the time quantified, right? Sure. And, and 
you know, it, it's, I, I, my suspicion is that it's not because of some, you know, massive uh, overarching tendency towards the specific quantification and, and, you know, uh, empiricization of, of, of data. I think it's more just like no one wants to read a five page report and they'd much rather know that there's an 80% chance that something's going to happen, right? Like it just comes down to people don't have time and a number explains things better. Um, I personally, and these are very much my views and not like, you know, representative of our clients or London political or anything. I am not a fan of numbers and, and, and not a fan of, you know, the, the, the exclusive focus on putting a number on everything, right? Because there's a couple of problems with that, um, you can't really put a number at all. Like in almost no situation can you put a number on the specific question that your client is asking you because usually it's specific to their company, right? And to be able to do that, so say your client is asking you like, uh, you know, there is, uh, there, this, is, this is an actual project we had a couple of months ago, the, the sort of a uh, nonprofit that wanted to find out uh, we're operating in Zambia. What's the currency risk to us in Zambia over the next six months, right? The convertibility currency risk. There's like, you know, we can say the currency might fluctuate by this much or, you know, whatsoever. Um, but, you know, that client has, has a specific exposure to specific industries and specific sectors. And even if, you know, currency fluctuation is really high, there are certain uh, strategies that they can use to mitigate that uh, beforehand. Like, there's no way we can say, like, you know, 40% is the risk that you face. And lots of firms try to do that, and it doesn't really work out. Where you can use numbers is, you know, you can kind of say, maybe in sort of electoral polling or, or, you know, the outcome of specific events, you know, the chance of Brexit happening is this much. Like, I can get behind that. Um, but once you start to layer numbers on other numbers, right, like every index you have is built up of sub-indexes and every sub-index is built up of either polling data or like some proxy objective data, right? And every number that you build on top of each other, the more crude the metric gets. And so one problem is it's just not accurate. And the other problem is if you actually have that number, you don't know what to do with it. And then a the third problem is people just look at numbers differently, right? Like there's research um, that when you compare in different countries, uh, even if people feel the same about a situation, they're more likely to be sort of give it a seven in Asian countries than in European countries, they give it a six. Even if they feel the exact same about it, there's cultural differences, right? Um, a six or a seven is a 10% difference, right? That could move your entire stock portfolio. So I'm very much not a fan of, for a number of those reasons and many others, using kind of numbers as an end product um, in, in giving recommendations, yeah. But if you're talking about like particular like macro risks or something, and let's say there was like a good judgment question actually like on that, might that be something that you would reference like, hey, like here's the analysis, but it could change because of this future event. And this is just the current likelihood that, you know, prediction yeah. markets are giving it just as a way to, you know, as sort Another of input. Yeah. 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 No, that's what I said. Right? So like if there's a big... Like, an event we can we can yeah. we can use anyone's but number if on it's that, yeah and, and i mean obviously fair. forecasting for like yeah. an individual company right like exactly and that's what the company cares about right yeah. like they like you know we will can your ship be hijacked by well, you know when yeah. when you're when when your shipping container goes by right that's a much harder forecast exactly. than like how many ships right will be exactly. hijacked um, exactly exactly that's it and and more than that right like usually clients don't really care about the risk they care more about um, how do we mitigate that risk and, mm. you know, not the, like the chance of there being yeah. an opportunity, but how do we capitalize on that opportunity, right? Which is where we come in. We're really, we, we are very rarely telling a client, like, you have a very high risk here. You know, we've done all this analysis. The risk is high, right? We're trying to get involved with their business. We're trying to say, like, the risk is quite high here, um, but the risk is tied to the fact that you have these three partners who are involved with, 
you know, X, Y, and Z. And if you cut off these partners and maybe, you know, you have this exposure to, uh, you know, this currency through this operation and this business dealership, if you cut that off, like we're trying to help them solve the problem, right? Um, which is what they care about. But it would be, you know, it wouldn't, it'd be maybe 10% of the job if we just said, this is the risk to you. Yeah. So um, before we make it to the very special rapid fire round of the podcast with a brand new question, you'll be the first one forecasting it. Um, what can people expect in the future for London Politica? Are there sort of any projects you guys are, are working on as, as sort of a firm um, that mm. um, people can expect publicly? And also where can our guests find you and London Politica? Tons of things. Yeah. Um, top thing to mention is, you know, if you like the kind of stuff that we're doing, if you're interested broadly in the space, we're, we're recruiting right now, right? We're recruiting um, bright sort of young analysts, uh, whether you're in university or just sort of recently graduated, um, undergrad, master's, PhD, whatever. Uh, if you care about these sorts of things that we're talking about and you want to get that real world experience, um, actually being on the front lines of talking to a client, solving these issues, you know, navigating and going down these rabbit holes on the Iranian sanctions list, um, then this really is the place for you. So, so we're, we're recruiting right now. There's applications on our website. Check that out. Um, but it kind of as broadly as a firm, right, we're really trying to position ourselves to create more and more meaningful um, uh, thought leadership that isn't just the news, right? That, that's what every political risk firm, firm is trying to do. We're not trying to copy the FT or the BBC or The Economist. We're trying to, as hard as we can to do something really, really forward-looking and really, really actionable, right? Those are the two things we focus on. Um, so talking more about, you know, uh, under the surface risk, right? Like we just talked about today with, you know, uh, central bank-backed digital currencies and private military contracts. Like those are the things we really want to be thinking about is thought leadership stuff and making people more aware of. Um, but, you know, in the micro, we've got a brilliant lineup of podcasts coming up uh, over the month of September. Uh, some fantastic guests uh, from the industry and and from outside of the industry that brings sort of their unique perspective. So check What's that the out. What's podcast called? It's called London. It's just the London Politica podcast uh, on Spotify, okay. Apple, whatever else you you know get your podcasts. So yeah, that's that's what you can expect from us in the future. Alrighty, well, it is time to enter the forecasting zone, which is the I'm first nervous. time we've called it that, but. Dun, dun, dun. The lights, the, music, the lights yeah. would come down. Yeah, kind of like um, no deal. who wants to be a million or, or deal no deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, all right. Well, case number one. Uh, mm. What is the likelihood that Russia annexes territory in Eastern Europe by 2026? So just, just, just really quickly, am I supposed to give like just a number, or are you looking for a little bit of a sentence? You can, like, what are you, you can, you can give your thought process out loud. Maybe like one, two sentences. And, sure, uh, sure, sure. And a number. Um, Okay, and a number. Okay, um, Russia annexing a bit of territory. So, so what's happening right now with the U.S. China? Same thing happening with U.S. Russia, which very few people recognize. It's a strategic stalemate, right? Um, either side has a vested interest to not take it further than it needs to be. Um, and you know, you might. So, well, can you see like technically a little bit of territory gained or lost? Yes, I, I would put that at by twenty twenty six, maybe like you know sixty seventy percent. Is that going to be a meaningful change? Is that going to be a ton of people? Is that going to be a ton of you know assets? No, I don't think so. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, the second question is: What is the likelihood that we find alien life by twenty thirty? Um, and that can be either signs of past alien life or current alien life, um, you know, single cell organisms, yeah. techno signatures, UFOs, mm. green dudes, you know, 
Anything, I mean, anything. I, I would give it like 99.999% that aliens do exist, right? Like, I, I think I'm a big fan of like Hawking and everyone on this. Like, it's just, it's an inevitability. Um, whether or not we find them is just like based on the scientific technology. Right? I, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I'll give you like 95% was that I want it to be. So that, that's the best <laughs> I can give you. Well, this is either going to be the best scoring forecast we've ever had or the worst. This is very exciting. Mm -hmm. um next one what is the likelihood that a majority of the quad and the five eyes so four out of the seven boycott the 2022 olympics in beijing very low um quad and the five eyes being was it u.s uk canada australia new zealand is it right mm -hmm. and then um, throw in india japan okay the quad and the five yeah, i thought yeah, you meant yeah. the four out of the five um yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. There's no chance all of them are boycotting it. I, I don't uh, see a majority, a majority, a majority of them. Yeah, I, yeah, no, I don't think so either. I think um, uh, what's going to happen? Okay, so the IOC has has a new thing called Rule Fifty. Um, I, I don't know if you looked into this um, on on the freedom of expression at at uh, you know Olympic Games. I think what Beijing is is very acutely aware of these sort of things, and they're going to have a little bit more kind of like um uh, tokenistic you know let's let the athletes talk about the problems and protest a little bit which won't make any mainstream coverage and so there'll be a bit of a stalemate but and, and you'll see maybe like you know some like the uh, some like remote team from ukraine pulling out like some or some you know one-off events but all the big countries pulling out i don't see it happening um i don't know five percent five percent and then what about just the united states uh i mean obviously lower than that right um still possible though i mean the more i think about it actually the more the more sympathetic i am to the idea i don't know five ten percent okay yeah. um what is the likelihood that china closes the uyghur camps uh by 2022 now if they open up other camps that they move them to or you know this is more like a, a public announcement mm. closure thinking more like pr for the olympics what is likely they've been re-educated yeah mission yeah. mission mission complete you know like you know. yeah i mean look technically the camps never exist in the first place they're just education camps right um so so can't close what do you say about that? The PR thing. <laughs> i you know I, i'm actually i'm actually not even convinced beijing gives that much of it like shit when it comes to like pr around the weaker crisis right um there's not that much that they're trying to do even to cover it up right um there's not that much of an elaborate lie being told it's very much just like yeah like it, it's almost a joke right it's like yeah these are re-education camps and they know everything points to the opposite um but the very fact that no one really does anything about it lets them get away with it um emboldens them i think and, and there's a there's a larger responsibility to be played there i i don't think i mean yeah is is there like maybe a tokenistic thing that might happen and i think that's the only thing that'll happen yeah. um yeah, maybe 30, 40% chance. I could see that happening. Um, is there going to be like an actual, like, let's not discriminate against Muslims? Like, is she going to like turn over one day and say like, I, I want to be a good person? I don't think so. Yes. Um, so three more. Uh, what is the likelihood that Saudi Arabia and Israel normalize diplomatic ties before 2025? Mm. Okay, so I think de facto... 80 90 percent right de facto I think, we're already there arguably yeah yeah de facto we're already there right so it's so like basically there i think there's two things that'll speed it up in terms of actual recognition right um if mbs gains more power um that'll really really help and he's destined to do that i think we're looking good for that 
Um, and I think the direction we haven't seen too much from uh, Al-Raisi uh, in Iran, right? If he becomes more emboldened as more conservative and more hardliner than then, you know, we've, we've talked about that, but it's only been a couple of months and we haven't really seen much of it. But if we, the more we see of that, I think the more close it'll bring uh, Saudi and Israel. Um, overall, I, I'd give it a very high, 70, 80%. Um, I think, you know, barring, I, I think the one real root of that problem is like an official, uh, sort of what official way they can maneuver on the Palestinian issue. Um, but I'm sure they'll find something, some way to put that, you know, even if it's really contradictory, 70, 80%. Yeah. Um, all right. Last two. So this is the penultimate one. Um, what are the odds that there's a flare up in the South China Sea by 2023 um, that results in more than 10 deaths from any single country? And the 10 deaths piece is more just a sort of uh, qualify the size of the flare-up, that it's not just sort of a very small thing, but that it actually results in casualties. Yeah, it, it's a really good thing you pointed out too, right? Because the way I see it, there might be, like, there's either going to be very small things or very big things. There's really no in between in the South China Sea, right. right? Like, you might see a little vessel here attacked or a little sort of, you know, boat here tugged or whatever, right? Or some freedom of navigation operation obstructed. Um, actual people dying on either side will be a big, big escalation. And if that's mm -hmm. one or two, that's a big deal. If that's 10, um, I'm assuming that's like an entire vessel attacked, right? Uh, on either side, that will be a very, very big escalation, which is partly why I think it's that makes it less likely. Um, I, I think, again, like I said, they're in a strategic stalemate, right? I think it's not like, you know, much Cuban crisis, say. Uh, you know, the only reason that that would happen is there's a, there's a strategic misjudgment on either side of, of the intentions of the other. But if they have roughly the same understanding that they do right now, I don't know, not, not too high, right? Maybe 10, 10, 15, 20%. All right. And yeah. the last we'll question that. is, what is the likelihood the P5 recognized the Taliban as the official government of Afghanistan by 2022? U.S., U.K., France, mm. Russia, and good old China. Interesting. Uh, so China already has, basically. Um, Russia, Russia almost has as well. Yeah, they both Russia have embassy has. staff, yeah. Right. Um, the U.S. has laid out their, their, their mm. what the Taliban has to accomplish. By, yeah, I, very, I, I, I'm not sure. To be honest, so, yeah, I'll, I'll preface that by saying I'm really, really not sure which people in this industry should do more of. Um, I, I, yeah, somewhere sort of, I don't know, 30, 40%. I, I think, I think uh, there's very little. You see, you see, the bar for the Taliban to screw up is really, really low. All right. Um, and it's very politically unpalatable for the US, UK, and France to recognize the Taliban as the official government um, if there's even sort of, you know, a, a sort of big news story about them, you know, oppressing women in one province, right? And, and the chance of them doing that are very, very high. Uh, and it's not like, you know, the, the France is like dying to get in there and like, you know, do some good old like 2% of their GDP trade or whatever, right? So like, there's, there's no major economic interest as I see. I mean, yeah, apart from opium or whatever, so, um, which is on the black market anyway. So yeah, like 20, 30%. Okay. Well, yeah. perfect. This was the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast. This was a, a really great appearance. I think, um, yeah, everyone yeah, definitely go. Yeah, where can people... You got Twitter, we can 
people can go ahead and 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 find you at uh where can they find london politica on twitter um, honestly i mean yeah you can find us on twitter right i'm, I'm not I'm, personally i'm not that big on twitter i think it's just it's it's a lot of uh i i i have yet to find like many meaningful conversations on twitter so i'm big on linkedin right connect with me if you find this please 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 go on linkedin send me a connection say hi tell me you heard this uh would mean a lot and i just love talking to new people so do that uh london political super active on linkedin as well give us a follow that that mean a lot um and yeah, just, just, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing in this industry is like it, whether or not it's London political or you want to do something else or like whatever, if you want to get even like, you know, one step ahead here, it's only going to be by knowing more people. And the best way to do that is to, you know, take two minutes out of your day to write 20 words and just say, hi, I saw you work here. I'm very fascinated by your career path. Would you have time for a 20 minute call and do that to as many people as you can? Um, that's how you met just you. Learned so much. That's, that's how you met us, right? So, like, Andrew, I think it was what, like, I, I left a comment on, on, yeah, you left a comment, or, or you left a comment, or something Jacob like that. We, we left, post on Jacob Shapiro's post, yeah. So, we, we left a comment somewhere. So, that's the thing, right? Like, all the best opportunities, and this is some like very unsolicited advice at the very end, but like, all the best opportunities I've gotten have been purely by chance. But they're not in chance in the sense that like you have to like widen your surface area for opportunity to hit, right? Like you've got to leave comments, you've got to film a podcast, you've got to reach out to people. And then when you have that network, right, something will happen and you'll get, a, you know, an interesting scoop somewhere. So um, do more of that. Put yourself out there. Put your work out there. That's really, really important, right? If, if you want to make it in the industry and you have no work out there and you say you've done a bunch of consulting, but like you can't see anything, um, that's not very good. So put your work out there. Uh, talk to more people and that's it follow me follow London Politica thank you so much thanks guys for for hosting me really appreciate it all right well LinkedIn links will be in the description and that's show so thanks everyone for watching and we'll catch you in the next one bye